Hello and welcome to this interview with author, one of the directors of Sex Matters and former editor at The Economist, Helen Joyce. Thank you very much for coming in today. Thanks for inviting me. Well, so I've read your book. Everyone should. Everyone should go pick it up. Um, trans, done very well in terms of sales because this is the pervading pathology of the times. I don't want to just go through all of the contents here today. What I, what I hope to do as well is elongate some of the premises that you executed in your book and, and some of your interviews since because you have had a sizable impact on the global conversation of this. And so I want to see where it's going to head, our, our trajectory of travel as well. But, but if you don't mind introducing the audience, what actually got you interested in this, considering you, were, you used to be a mathematician and, and you were talking about um, slightly less politically controversial issues? What, what lit the fire in your belly? I mean, yes, I have a PhD in mathematics, but that's a long time ago, and it's a long time since I left academia. Um, I've been, I was at The Economist since 2005, first as a correspondent and then editing sections. Um, really, it was just the way that you end up doing a lot of things in journalism. A commissioning editor says to you, did you know about such and such? What do you think? Um, the editor of the paper sat down next to me at lunch one day and said, uh, the kids keep coming home and saying such and such is trans. What's that all about then? And I said, I have literally no idea. Let me find out. Uh, I failed to find a correspondent to write about it. And the job I was doing at the time, there was some time to write long reads. So I started um, gathering string, as you say, in journalism, you know, reaching around, doing phone calls and spare moments and, you know, became convinced that there was something very strange happening here. Wrote an article that I didn't feel very satisfied by in 2017, I think. And then in 2018, really became convinced that there was something very strange going on here and uh, tried to write a longer article. Now, that article ended up running in Quillette in late 2018. And by then, um, the reaction to doing interviews, to writing the article, to talking about it, had convinced me that this was a subject like nothing else that I had done in journalism. And I've done a lot of different things. Like I lived out in Brazil for a while. Um, I was the finance editor by the time that article came out. So I've covered really a mixture of topics, uh, including some very controversial ones, like um, I had written long reads on paedophilia, on the impact of pornography. I had um, I had interviewed the president of Brazil. I had. Uh, written about corruption in Brazil, about murders, you know, like a lot of different things, but this was responded to like nothing else. And that's the thing that got me interested. You know, as a journalist, you're meant to uh, notice when there's news. And when people don't want to talk to you, you're meant to keep asking more, you know. It was extraordinary that people were sort of saying, oh, people don't want to talk to me on this. I'm not meant to talk about this. Let's not talk about it. It's exactly the opposite of what you're meant to do. And I had already started thinking I should write a book but I was just kind of like, this is going to blow up my life. It's already a significant pain being shouted at all the time on social media. And then I met detransitioners. And so I met the first young people I had come across personally, as opposed to online, who had gone through some medical steps because they had become convinced that they were trans, uh, up to and including having their sexual organs removed. So girls who had had their ovaries, uterus, removed who had taken testosterone and they were like 2021 20, and it's now a couple of years later and they'd realized this was all just social contagion you know then misunderstanding perhaps their gender nonconformity because they turned out to be lesbian or uh, just getting caught up thinking that it was a solution to an eating disorder all sorts of different reasons and that was the day that I thought right you know maybe in some respects I'm not the right person to write this book but you don't get to pick. I can't be somebody else. I've seen this thing now. I can't unsee it. That was the day I said the sentence in my head, uh, they are sterilising gay kids. They're sterilising gay kids in the name of an ideology. I hadn't quite got to the point of saying to myself, this is some weird new 
religion, but that's what I think now. Um, I think we're looking at a, a godless neo-religion. And I decided that night. So that was in late 2018. Hmm. Yeah, no, it seems to be a doctrine of transcendence without metaphysic. That, that I really saw in, in your breakdown in chapter three of, of The Matrix. Uh, there's a sort of trans hero narrative playing out here, but it's, it's a struggle for recognition against reality rather than living within one. I, I, had, a, I had a similar experience recently. I had, the, I had the privilege of, do you know Richie Heron? I do, yeah. Yes, yeah, lovely fella. And, and one of the things that majorly struck me to sort of plumb the depths of this stuff further was when I was having a, a cordial chat with him. I was, I was, other than all of the information he was giving me and all of the, the personal horrors he'd been through, he always struck me as a really lovely bloke. And the saddest part of the interview wasn't even hearing about the surgical malpractice done on him. It was when I said, well, I hope from now on you can live as normal a life as you can. And he said, well, it's going to be difficult because frankly, any intimate relationship I ever have with anyone, it's going to be more like they're caring for me than I can actually have. And I was just thinking, you are robbing the lives of these people. It's just, and, and, and quite, quite literally, unfortunately, robbing the lives. Because actually since, since you produced the book, there was a massive study, I think it was Denmark that came out, um, I had it written down, and they, they said that when they, when they looked at it and they said this was comparable for the states as well, that people in the country had seven point, transgender people, 7.7 .7 times the rate of suicide attempts, 3.5 times the rate of suicide deaths, and transgender people in Denmark died by suicide or other causes at younger ages. So. My question then, the, the, obviously the, the trans lobby are now going to pose to you with increasing further as this has swelled since you first investigated it. Um, is this all transphobia or are there other comorbidities going on here? So often people who um, want to defend doing something that hasn't got a standard evidence base will say it's minority stress that causes those downsides. You know, I would say look, you're looking at people who have very significant comorbidities. We know that from any gender clinic that's checked. You know, you see people who are on the autistic spectrum. You see people who have eating disorders, anxiety, depression, you know, all sorts. I would say they are um, mistreating or misdiagnosing something or offering a, a false panacea for something else. They would say, oh, those things are um, minority stress. And once the person is recognised as trans, and if transphobia were to disappear, these people will be normally mentally healthy. And there's just no evidence for that, and a fair amount of evidence the other way. Um, the evidence the other way is sort of, you know, circumstantial and through history because nobody's doing the right sorts of studies. There have been a few studies, but mostly not the right sort. The two questions you'd want to ask yourself are, one, are we offering a false treatment for, for, for a completely different problem? And two, Anyway, does this treatment help? Like, it might be that people who are, say, post-surgery or post-medical treatment or post-diagnosis still kill themselves a great deal more. But maybe it would have been more more if they hadn't. Do you see what I mean? So you'd have to compare like with like. I mean, I'd just remind your viewers that uh, this is a really recent phenomenon. We haven't seen large numbers of children, fortunately, killing themselves ever. Mm. It's very, very rare for minors to kill themselves. It still is, thankfully. So if it were the case that trans were a real thing, like a, a, a discrete phenomenon that is prop has been properly delineated and labelled, that we can diagnose and we can treat and this treatment works, it would kind of follow that we would have seen a lot more child suicides. There would have been historical consequences. Yes, the, yes. And this is just not the case. Like, I mean, I'm older than you are. I promise you, 
nobody much, like hardly anybody. I literally never met anybody who ever thought that you could really be born in the wrong body in that way. And certainly children didn't think that. Like you have to really go looking in history. And by history, I just mean anything before about 20 years ago uh, to find any children who thought in any sense that they were really meant to be the opposite sex. It was incredibly rare. And anyway, those children didn't commonly kill themselves about it. Thankfully, I should say again. So it just, none of this makes sense as a narrative that there is this thing, that they're diagnosing it properly, that they're giving it the best possible treatment, that if they don't give it this treatment, people will kill themselves, that if transphobia were to vanish, we would see a significant difference in child suicidality. Just none of this makes sense. It just doesn't add up. Yeah. One of one of the things that struck me when you were just saying there, I was thinking in, in my head, and I've I've met people who have said this to me that were were formally trans-identifying, didn't go through the medical stuff. But they said, you would be surprised about the amount of people that they had spoken to within that community, particularly young girls who had been abused in some way or had gone through the care system. Yeah. Um, this was in the, the policy exchange report recently. They, they yes. found that it was a, a massive um, overrepresentation of girls in foster care that were trans-identifying. So, so my concern is always, what is trans identification masking and allowing them to self-censor in uh, and allowing other people to get away with predatory behaviors that have inculcated this in them i mean that's that's the fear in me uh, the the other one that struck me as well particularly after after reading your book and, and your articulation of autogynephilia and and that gave a real shiver up my spine you were one of the people that that properly brought this into the conversation as a as a dimension of male trans identification when the new york times asked i believe it's the aclu about the the recent Denmark study, they put it purely on social prejudice. And they actually said trans people are overrepresented not only in, in being in poverty and in sex work, but also in the prison system. And that pricked my ears up. And it was like, well, is that is that rampant transphobia or are there a number of men trying to identify as women to get out of out of causality? Because that's something that you found, and I think people might find that quite interesting. I mean the first thing I'd say is that any statistics on trans people are just mm. going to be really very difficult because it's not a well delineated category. Mm. You know, if you uh, like I used to work for the Royal Statistical Society and my PhD is in mathematics. Um, the first question you should ask yourself about any figures is, you know, how plausible is it that they actually could find this out? I remember talking to a researcher in the House of Commons and they said that MPs tend to come in, like typically an MP will start their job and they will come and they will want to know things about what is happening in my constituency. But constituency boundaries are always shifting and they're not a delineation for statistical purposes. They tend to use wards or counties or whatever. Um, so that sort of, that I always that always stuck in my mind, like to ask yourself, like, how would, how would we know this? Who's counting it? Is it a well-defined category? Uh, would it be very expensive to find this out? Is it in anyone's interest to find it out? Is there somewhere I could look? You know, So given that this is a very, very poorly defined category, I mean, if you say you're trans, you're trans. And who's counting? Who's checking who's saying they're trans? Like, it's not like it's being properly tracked. There was a quest question in the most recent census, but it was absolutely ballsed up by the Office for National Statistics. They developed it only with trans lobby groups and they ended up asking things so confusing that the number of people who do identify as trans clearly was swamped, like looking at the map, clearly was swamped by people who just didn't know what yeah, they were Yeah, there were some areas where they Neenham. found that the, yes, where uh, English is their first language, yes. Closely English being second less. language, yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, yes, Newnham was the was the ward with the most trans people in the UK. Yes. Uh, one in sixty-seven. 
And I mean, this is just not plausible. Mm. It just isn't at all plausible. So, so that's a sort of a, a very blanket thing to say. Whenever anyone asks me how many are there, how many of them suffer from this or suffer from that or go on to do that, you know, we don't know. Nobody's checking. And I sometimes think it's actually willful because some things we could check. Like the people who've been to um, the through the NHS, the people who've been through the JIDS clinic, the NHS um, Gender Identity Development Service, which is the main paediatric clinic, they absolutely could be tracking those. But they're not. You're like, why are you not doing that? Like, do you not want to know what the outcomes are of what you're doing? Anyway, that was a very lengthy preamble. So you, so if you think about people in prison, do we even think that the prison service know, knows who identifies as trans? Like, yes, they'll know the ones who brought it to their attention. But what does that, what does that mean that they say they're trans? Does it mean that they... They want access to women's clothes. Does it mean that they want to transfer to a women's prison? Does it mean that they want to go on hormones? Um, for what it is worth, an FOI by campaign group Fair Play for Women, and it was later followed up by the MOJ, I think, um, found that the male trans prisoners that the prison system knows about are really, really disproportionately sex criminals. So then you ask yourself, you know, is that because there's something about being trans? I think it's just much more likely that it's something about being a sex criminal, to be honest. Hmm. Like They're using the marginalised identity as a Trojan horse? It just, you know, there's a chance of transfer to women's jail, but also you, you, can't, you have to be quite cynical about people who have committed serious crimes in prison. Like, these are people who are very antisocial, a lot of them. Like, a man who's committed a sex crime and has got caught and is in prison for it is both somebody who is very antisocial and, and possibly not massively smart because most people who commit sex crimes get away with it. You know, we know that from um, studies of how many women have been raped and how few of those actually lead to convictions. So this is a population, you know, that you take with a bit of a pinch of salt, frankly. Uh, in particular, they are people who like to mess with the system. So I talked to a retired prison governor, in fact, when I was writing my book, and she had come across... Um, several trans-identified men, uh, men who said that they were women in the prison system. And she said there was only one that she thought actually really meant it. She's a massively misguided guy who, 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 I mean, really, really mentally troubled, who kept changing his identity, actually got transferred to a women's jail and then immediately demanded to be transferred back. And, you know, really sad story, actually, seriously mentally disturbed. She said the other ones she came across were just trying to mess with the system. Mm. One of them, um, he, he tried to get transfer, but he was too dangerous. He's one of the most dangerous prisoners in Scotland and he can't be moved, except, you know, in the full body suit with his arms like that. Hannibal Lecter. I mean, he's not got this, but no. um, he has actually bitten his veins open in his uh, cell and things like that to spray, spray blood on the um, guards. Anyway, he wasn't moved. And his next, his next ploy was to change his name by deed poll to Mighty Almighty so that the prison guards had to call him Mr. Almighty or Mighty. This is, this is what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, so that person yeah. counts as, as trans. That's a trans woman. And when, when they write about him in the Scottish press, they call him she and woman. And they say, you know, woman refused transfer to women's jail. Uh, you know, and then there's this picture of this terrifying looking bloke, you know, with four prison guards chained to him. You just have to wonder what's going on in the head of the journalists. Well, the Daily Mail are even guilty of that sometimes. Oh, the mostly. Most, they call them she. Yeah, the most recent story was that fellow that got up and said, uh, punch a turf in the face, yeah. who had removed his testicles in a prison cell with a razor and is now back in prison. And at them. Wow. Okay, I'm, I'm sure it's a delicacy in some part of the world, but, yeah, but I'm, before I'm very that, disturbed. Just to give this man his history, this is a man who was sent to jail for kidnapping, hmm. uh, sexually assaulting and torturing somebody, yes. and in jail attempted to murder his cellmate, and then said he was a woman. 
and then, you know, self-mutilated uh, and then came out after serving 30 years. Now, look, think think what you have to have done to actually serve 30 years in jail. Came out, now calls himself Sarah Jane Baker. I think it's Baker, maybe it's Barker. Uh, and is, you know, has it's been photographed on, on platforms of people like Nadia Whittam, MP, mm. Labour MP. Uh, Lloyd Russell Moyle, I think, uh, has been on stage with him as well. Um, you know, talking about trans rights and trans rights in prisons. And you're like, well, like what? Like... This is your this this is the person that you're standing up for, and yes, um, he said something about punching women in the face, turfs specifically, trans exclusionary radical feminists, and then there were people saying, well, of course, of course, she's angry. It's like, well, I mean, can I do that? Mm. Can I stand up and incite violence and say that I'm feeling angry because actually I do feel quite angry rather a lot of the time. Mm. Uh, apparently not. So anyway, he's been rearrested. So yeah, thankfully so. Uh, I do want to jump onto the Labour Party in a moment, but. But to contrast that pathology then, because maybe you might be able to, to help me with the psychology to work this out. I, I see things like Drag Queen Story Hour as a similar Trojan horse. Um, I am very concerned with putting children without any safeguarding procedures in the proximity of men who may be just getting their rocks off. We've seen numerous videos of men performing sexually explicit acts in front of kids. We know that Robert Clothier and Alfonso Garza are one of the friends of the, the ADHD guy that, that performed in the tape of all been convicted sex criminals now. So why do parents keep taking their kids to it? I think some people are catastrophically naive and you'd like to think that people would be a bit more suspicious when it's their own kids on the line. I mean, you have to remember, like, if a child's two, three, four, their mum's there with them. So I don't think we're talking about contact sex crimes. I also, by the way, don't think that most of these drag queens are motivated, um, you know, by any sexual desire for children at all. Like, it's just another job, isn't it? Like, if somebody's going to offer you a daytime gig that they're paying for when you do a nighttime job mostly of course you're going to just fit it in so I, I don't I mean I don't think that most of these guys are particularly awful I just think the whole thing is misconceived and obviously poorly vetted and an opportunity for the minority who are looking to take advantage of it my issue with it is that it's indoctrination so I mean if you'd never heard of Drag Queen Story Hour and someone said to you, let's try to inculcate a love of reading and also a bit of diversity in primary and secondary schools and in children's libraries, you would not land on drag queens. You just wouldn't. You'd think, well, you know, let's look around in the local neighbourhood and find ourselves all sorts. Let's get a firefighter in to read a book about a firefighter and let's get a train driver in to do Thomas the Tank Engine. And why don't we get a nurse and maybe we could get a vet and wouldn't it be good if we'd a few disabled people so that children learn, you know, that people who look different are, are also people, you know. You could, do, you could have a lot of fun with that. Why would you land on drag queens? Absolutely extraordinary. So that's the first thing, like... It's just bizarre. So why are they doing it? I mean, the the books give it away. They don't just read any old thing. They don't come in and read Thomas the Tank Engine. They come in and read these books that are gender identity theory. They come in and read things about, you know, here's a teddy and he's got a bow tie and he takes the bow tie off and he puts it on as a clip on his head and now she's she. Yeah, all the hips on the drag queen go swish, yeah, swish, swish. Yeah, so it's indoctrination. And then the secondary thing... Um, I mean, you know, the first one's declared. They are coming in and trying to teach the children this. The second one's not declared, but I think it's the most insidious bit of it. Before children have really fixed what it is to be a man or a woman, because little children think it's about clothes. They think, you know, two or three or four-year-old will think you can turn a man into a woman by changing the hair and clothes or vice versa. And then they realise, no, it's bodies and it's fixed and, you know, you can change the clothes and it's still. 
you haven't changed the sex. They're getting in before that solidifies and they're telling the children that this very garishly dressed, obvious man who's dressed as a woman with loads of makeup and a wig and high heels and so on is a woman and is being called she. So I think that they're just softening the kids up for calling obvious men women later on. Have you uh, read the drag pedagogy paper by yeah, any chance? I have, yeah, yeah that's, that was particularly disturbing, which I'm now glad has, has got the attention of politicians like Miriam Cates. But you're right, they do just come out and say it. They say that we're going to leave a trail of glitter in the carpet that'll never come out. That sort of stuff just, just reads like a threat to me. So, so from, from your estimation, it's, it's bottom up. I have seen suggestions with the vegan cat syndrome of, of some parents, particularly mothers. I saw there was a paper that said that uh, rates of BPD among mothers with trans-identifying boys were quite high. I think that was quite an old paper and yes. quite small numbers, so I wouldn't pay too, too much, much attention to that. that like anything that came before the recent explosion in trans-identification is going to be talking about different populations. Right. Like it's everywhere now. So I, I think, you know, the mothers who are bringing their children, I mean, I, I have two kids. Hmm. The early bit of motherhood is pretty damn boring. I mean, I liked it, but you are trying to think of things to do. You do break things down into 15-minute segments when you have a small child, especially when you're a small child who, like my first child, you know, couldn't be entertained for longer than about 90 seconds on any one thing. So if you were the sort of person who liked going out with your girlfriends to gay bars and watching drag queens and drinking cocktails, this looks like a way to have a bit of fun right. with other women. Your babies are there, you know you're not thinking about it very seriously, I guess. It's in the local library and it's at 3pm. Like, what's the problem? So I, I think that there's just a lot of kind of naivety as opposed to any, you know, that you can say that the people who do this are bad people in any way. Like, once something is everywhere, you can you basically can't really say very much about the people who are doing it The, the 90 anymore. seconds thing actually really, really reminds me. So I've the amount of children I've seen on, in, on planes or in restaurants with a tablet just stuck in front of them as soon as they start to cry. They're hypnotised by the obsidian mirror. You know, I, I have quite a bit of sympathy with parents these days who feel that they want to sedate their child when they're demonstrating a large amount of distress, particularly when they're traveling and whatnot. But my only concern is, of course, and particularly if you give a teenager a phone and just send them up to their bedroom, you don't know what's raising them. Um, and that's that's something that you, you highlighted in there. It was, it was I believe your, your book didn't hit on TikTok as much because it hadn't exploded. No, that's right. It was yeah. Tumblr. Everyone was yes. going on about Tumblr when I started to look at this. I mean, you, you've packed a lot in there and I really don't want to criticize anyone who puts a tablet in front of a child on a plane because, frankly, I'd give them bloody morphine if I could. <laughs> Not really. Um, that's what the Industrial Revolution mothers did for us. Lord them, wasn't it? Um, yeah. So, so I think they're very separate phenomena. I think there's this there's this worry, which I don't frankly know enough about to comment on. That you know, you're giving your child a lot of screen time when they're little. What I was talking about was teenagers mm. um, online in spaces where there are no adults. So it it has never been the case that children, in large numbers, have been not overlooked by adults. You know, in any society, like, you know, okay, boys would go roaming, you know, from relatively young, but not for very long and not without somewhat older boys and not without keeping coming back to the group. Girls tended to stay closer to, to the home. What you didn't see is children bringing each other up. And if you think about The Lord of the Flies, if you think about that story is about, it is about how quickly children spiral off in when there are no adult inputs because children, you know, they're much less experienced they're much less good at assessing risk. They're kind of programmed in their teens to believe what each other says and not what grown-ups say. It's a desperately irritating period as a mother. Um, 
but it's important it's a way of them growing up and breaking away from you and being ready to move move on into adult life but it's never been the case that that's been oh and, and they're very febrile like they get new ideas all the time and they, they're they very fashion driven like fashions are driven by teenagers so a, a place where teenagers all around the world can get together w- with no input like or oversight from grown-ups is going to be a place that goes pretty pretty crazy pretty quickly and that's what happened on tumblr uh, where gender identities it became like almost like stamp collecting like which gender are you today and finer and finer gradations of gender and you know have you examined your gender and and then giving each other just unbelievably terrible advice with the sound of great authority this is a very teen thing to do but like normally you hope there's an adult who hears it relatively quickly but they're never not at all um and i mean I wouldn't be surprised if there were adults who were bad actors who were injecting stuff into this on occasion as well. We saw that with the Childline forums that James Esses had, had picked up on, unfortunately. Yeah. Not only were the, were the forums not moderated, so you didn't, and they weren't age verified, so they're meant to be for kids, but there could have been adults on there encouraging young women to buy breast binders and, yeah. and telling them, oh, if you get yourself sterilised, you can always have a surrogate in future, which is a horrifying thing to say. Yeah. But then the actual handwritten counselling service, which was staffed by adults, was giving the same advice back. So yeah. it, it really is just intersectional turtles all the way down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and then, okay, that's moved over to TikTok now. Um, and I think, you know, more comes out of TikTok than did with Tumblr in front of adults. Like, there are a lot of adults on TikTok in a way that there really weren't many on Tumblr. I mean, there were some, but not many. Um, and, and I think TikTok is kind of more performative. Like, Tumblr just had this... Um, hard to describe. I mean, I couldn't bear using it myself, but I've read some things that some young women wrote about their experience on Tumblr and just how quickly you go down bizarre rabbit holes and how easy it was to go to Tumblr for something else. Like one of the young um, detransitioners I talked to, an American woman, she had gone there because what she was into was 1950s rock and roll music and the clothes and the style and the whole lot of it. And it's a smallish fandom. And she went there and she, you know, she had a nice time on that, but she was struggling with other things like home problems and an eating disorder and the rest. And bit by bit, she wandered over to the, what they call pro-ana, anorexia. And from there, it was into gender. And then before she knew it, like this very pretty, not at all masculine, very tiny girl who liked ice skating and, you know, was never going to pass for the remotest second as a boy, believed she was a boy and found a counsellor in school who agreed with her. So it's just, you know, there was a lot of it going on online in these in these places. But I think another thing that has never happened before is that every bit of what a child touches has been corrupted about this. So the medical profession, you know, the Internet, schools, what they're teaching um, the broader culture, like what's being pumped out by Hollywood. You know, there's trans and non-binary characters in children's films now. Um, Even corporate virtue signaling. Yeah, like, Costa Coffee. Exactly. Now. Costa Coffee with it, you know, with the character who's got clear mastectomy scars like when did we start glorifying female self-harm and self-hatred it's it's so disgusting and i just wonder like anything corporate like that anything corporate advertising goes through an awful lot of people so a lot of people have seen that and you wonder like were there any of them who were thinking this is a bit off like you know there will have been people who saw it who have had or indeed have had themselves have either had a friend or a relative or have had themselves have had a mastectomy for cancer And these are not pleasant operations. Like, this is not, you know, we're not made of Lego. We don't take things off and put them back on again. So, 
you know, did they feel they couldn't say anything? Like, does it feel that it's bigoted to say, hang on, um, you know, we're celebrating major surgery on perfectly healthy bodies because people have dissociated from their bodies? Like, just a lot of it's subsidised as well. This is something you pointed out well ahead of the, the whole Dylan Mulvaney, he who must not be named on YouTube controversy, uh, the Corporate Equality Index by the Human Rights Campaign. It's just one of the scorecard systems to access ESG funding from the big corporate supergiants that are bankrolling loads of this. Because they know it's unpopular with people that, that see young girls who've had their breasts cut off and basically sterilised. Because anyone with a conscience would think that. So they have to astroturf it through, through every corporation, every bank. Barclays sponsoring Pride. I mean, it, it's mad. Yeah, it, yeah, but it's such a small amount of money for such a visible signal. Like... I don't think there's ever been a movement that has managed to get such leverage with such tiny amounts of money. Like people talk about Stonewall, our own equivalent of the ACLU and HRC, as if it's some behemoth of a charity. It's actually, you know, as charities go, it's on the you know small end of medium sized. Like there's millions of little tiny charities that just do some local thing. But if you compare it to something like um, RSPB, you know, the protection of birds, it's teeny tiny. It's got like a couple of hundred staff and, you know, some millions in turnover. There's charities that are just far, far larger than that. National Trust, whatever. So this charity with this relatively small amount of money and this relatively small amount of staff has found a way to get into the decision making of a very large share of all corporates in this country, also government. And it does it via a, a similar index, the the diversity, what's it called? The um, Diversity Champions. Diversity Champions, that's it. And I mean, I know some of the people who set up Stonewall and it started with the best of intentions. I mean, Stonewall itself did, but also this diversity champion scheme. So what happened was in the steps towards gay marriage, there were several stages when, you know, there was civil partnership before that. You know, there were various legal improvements for gay couples. And at various points, it became um, no longer either, you know, either um, sustainable for public relations reasons or indeed legal to discriminate against gay couples compared with straight couples. And so lots and lots of companies had things that were discriminatory, like their pension system, you know, like who inherited the pension, for example. Or if you had a, a, a store card system that your employees and their families could get cheap things, or if you subsidised travel or any of those things. So when, um, when civil partnership came in, what Stonewall did was it created a sort of best practice thing that looked through like every policy that a company could have and found the places where you had to change it in order to be compliant so that civil partners or unmarried gay couples would be treated the same way as married or unmarried straight couples. That was a service. It was a good service. And they grew a lot doing it and it was very helpful, but it was a one-off thing and it's finished. So then it was over. And then you have to decide what to do next. Like, do you get rid of all of those people? Or do you find some new way to keep going? And they unfortunately kept going. So what you do then is you start giving people asinine advice on the subject of gender neutral toilets and rainbow lanyards and pronouns and email signatures. And, and you have to keep upping the ante every year. Like I'm absolutely certain they didn't intend to do that at first. Like I think if you had said to them 10 or 15 years ago when they were helping companies to get rid of what was basically unlawful discrimination by that point, in their policies, you are going to be telling companies that it is discrimination to have separate toilets for men and women and that your non-binary staff have to have two uh, entry badges. Uh, I, I think they wouldn't they wouldn't have believed it. Nobody in Stonewall would have believed that they would possibly get to that point. Like it is such a road to hell paved with good intentions thing. 
So the original metric was catching up with the law as has been stated, whereas now the trans lobby and its yeah. various corporate pressure groups are a vanguard party trying to... Yeah, they're trying to make facts on the ground. Like there comes a point when it doesn't matter what the law says. We're so close to that, by the way. Mm. Like so many people have misrepresented the law over the last 10 years that many, many corporate uh, decision makers really think the law says, in some cases, diametrically opposite to what it does. Like they actually believe that they must do unlawful things in order to be lawful. And those of us who are saying otherwise are really running to catch up. Yeah, I, th I think this is this is something I want to I want to hit on a little bit later. But I I think the the trans issue is definitely more of a tech problem at this stage, um, because if if it is possible, then the law will have to retroactively try to rein it in rather than be able to to stop it. Um, I don't see why you call that a tech problem. I'm 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 not seeing so that. very much like with uh, Mary's term that you've used before, meat Lego. Oh yeah, if to such a point, I'll phrase this so it's family friendly that appendages can be 3D printed to be realistic rather than the phalloplasties being done in a brutal medieval torture method, it will become a more widely accessible procedure and less intrusive to be done. And so the trans activists will be more emboldened in saying, well, this is now even more legitimate because you don't have to have mastectomy scars. You can just put this and put it on, something like that. Maybe. I mean... <sighs> There's so many different things inside this movement and there's a significant number of them who think that what you said is what they would call transmedicalist or true scum, hmm. which is people who think that you have to do any, anything. Like there's a lot of them who are really just, um, they're just Descartian dualists. Yes. They just think that it is possible to, in some bizarre sense, really be a woman when you're actually a man. And I mean, they don't phrase it like that, of course, because the actually a man bit is transphobic as far as they're concerned. But those people... I don't think, I mean, I don't know why they even support the medical treatment. Like, I don't actually know why Judith Butler doesn't say, would you stop sterilising kids, please? Like, she's the one who says gender is a performance and it's fluid. Hmm. Well, then what the hell are we doing chopping kids up for it? That was a bit of a sidebar. Um, th there's a bunch of them who, it's, they're not really interested in how good or bad or otherwise the surgeries are. They just, they just want to break down any concept of the fact that there are t givens to the human condition, hmm. in particular the given of sex. And they don't want to do anything to break that down. They just want you to be able to say that you're a woman, me to say I'm able to be a man, and, you know, off we go and we use the wrong toilets. And it's just, like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's very strange. Like, what they think they're getting out of this, I don't know. But they th I think they think that when I say, look, it is just a fact that you are a man and it is just a fact that I am a woman, that what I mean is you must behave in a certain way and I must behave in a certain way and certain things are closed off to you or to me depending on which sex we are. I'm just making a statement like that this is a chair and I breathe oxygen, you know. Hmm. It's, I'm just saying a given. But they don't see givens and they want to pretend they don't see givens. This is where the Gnostic comparison comes in. Yeah. A hell of a lot. They see yeah. the entire world, material, biological, uh, as Mao once said, a revolutionary enemy as a kind of prison. And so recognition of the prison is imposing a limitation on their will. Isn't that odd? It's, it's like, it's like the, the idea that if you, um, if you never bothered to check what race people were, there would be no racism. I, I've really heard the argument that, uh, you know, we're the ones who are creating sexism by insisting that there are men and women. And if we stopped insisting that there are men and women, then there wouldn't be any sexism. I think it'd be exactly the same sexism. Mm. In fact, it'd probably be easier to be, to be sexist. Yeah, if we stopped doing the hoovering, there'd be no dust. Yeah, no. it's that stupid, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's, well, so you raised government uh, yeah. uh, a few sentences ago. 
that's one prediction I wanted to wanted to get your take on. Oh, yeah. uh, Keir Starmer, having been advised by Tony Blair, has now come out as turf and said well. that. Well, yes, yeah. Uh, expediently, shall we say? I'm fine with expedient. I don't. I don't. Uh, politicians do not owe me their sincerity. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I don't expect it. Let's put it that way. Uh, he he's come out and said a woman is an adult human female, despite beforehand saying what a point one ninety nine point nine percent of women do not have penises, which just is the so, most stupid thing. Yeah. So point one of them do. Thanks, thanks, Kia. But then that was the day after Annalise Dodds published in The Guardian their new gender identity stuff. And I, I found this very interesting because she goes from... He, he says, OK, well, a woman is an adult human female and will protect women's spaces. And then the mask slips a bit in her op-ed because she says they're going to modernise, simplify and reform the Gender Recognition Act because the requirement to obtain a medical diagnosis for gender dysphoria, although it remains an important part of accessing gender recognition certificates, the current process also requires an, a panel of anonymous doctors. A diagnosis provided by one doctor with a registrar instead of a panel should be enough. So in the procedure, they're going to fast track the trans services because all you need is essentially the Kira Bell situation, where one person rubber stamps it and you can get your first shot of testosterone um, the, the, the after two, one. The two people rubber stamp it, frankly, at the moment. Mm. I mean, one of the problems with all of this is that legally it's so so irritatingly complex and it takes you so long to explain it to anyone that anyone with any sense has lost the will to live by the time you get to the end of it. You have to distinguish between these gender recognition certificates and what it means to be trans, whatever that means. So there's only 6,000 gender recognition certificates have ever been issued in this country. And they don't keep track of the people who have them, but probably say about 1,000 of them have died. Uh, because they tend to, at the beginning, they were uh, they were issued to much older people uh, since 2004. So there's about 5,000 people now who have a piece of paper that entitles them to go and get a birth certificate that says the wrong sex on it. And uh, certain other things, like the gender recognition certificate changes your sex for certain legal purposes and doesn't change your sex for other legal purposes. And then there's some legal purposes we don't know because the law is silent. And in fact, we're trying to do some uh, clarifications either by statute or in courts on that. So hold that. Separately, there are people who have what in law is called the protected characteristic of gender reassignment. Mm. And that's very vague. That's much more like religion or belief. Like we don't certify people as being Muslim or vegan or whatever, or atheist. Well, we don't certify people as having the protected characteristic of gender reassignment. And we don't need to either, because this law, the Equality Act, is not about creating categories. It's about protecting people against discrimination in the provision of goods and services and in employment. So if you are treated badly in a pub, you're a man who's wearing a dress and a wig and some makeup and you go into a pub and the pub owner says, what's wrong with you? Get out. You've been discriminated against and you have a case against them. It doesn't mean that you're a woman. It just means you've been discriminated against them because he thought you were trans. So that's, that's a much larger group. We don't know how large, but it might be a few hundred thousand people and they may or may not dress differently they might it might just all be about the pronouns we just have no idea like the ons should have told us but it didn't and i'm bitter about that such a waste um so so those those people are um are, are the people that we're talking about when we say trans but then we keep going back to these bloody gender recognition certificates like 5000 people with those and maybe as many as a half a million maybe 2 300000 is more realistic who are just going around the place you know, saying my pronouns are they, them, or, you know, dressing very unusually or using the wrong spaces or demanding entry to women's sports when they're men, that sort of thing. None of those have certificates. 
that's just, you know, an amorphous group of people who are insisting that other people treat them as not their sex. That's what it's all about. And yet they just immediately keep going back to these wretched gender recognition certificates. So I want to know what they are going to do about the protected characteristic of sex. That's the one I'm interested in. The gender reassignment, I'm completely fine with people being protected against discrimination on any realistic grounds that people are discriminated against on, like religion or whatever. I want to know, are you going to, you know, make it really clear in law that it is totally fine to have single sex services in a range of very ordinary situations? And for those services to say, this is for female people, this is for male people. If you're male, don't go into the female one. Doesn't matter if you think you're female, doesn't matter if you feel female, doesn't matter what you're wearing, doesn't matter if you have the protected characteristic of gender reassignment, it's for females go away. That's what I'm interested in. And they just, this stuff is all, you know, just misdirection. So I want to, I want to take that off in, in two directions, if possible. Uh, firstly, let's be frank, Labour Party is probably going to get in yep. next time. I mean, hashtag 13 years, Conservatives have done basically nothing anyway. However, at least they still have a handful of good MPs spearheaded by Miriam Kate who actually gets this stuff. Yep. And if they get in, I, I'd, I'd wonder what your prediction on where this debate will go, both linguistically and legislatively. And then the other thing that I wanted to pick up on, and, and I'm, I'm going to be talking to Rakib Hassan at some point about the, the race and religion dimensions of the Equality Act. But at the start of this conversation, we actually hashed out this as a kind of religion without a metaphysic. It's got an act of transcendence, but it's got, it doesn't articulate it as a soul, but it acts as if there is a gendered true soul. Is there not a concern actually within the Equality Act framework that by us saying this is a religion, that it could be codified as one, and then they have an equal or competing claim to sex-based protections under this legal framework. Is the Equality Act framework not in and of itself an issue? Okay, so I'll take that as three sort of things. Something about the Conservatives, something about Labour, and something about the Equality Act Apologies, of Religion yeah. and Belief. No, that's fine. It's just for myself to uh, to, to lay it out. So, so yes, I, I think the Conservatives, probably their days are numbered. Um I worry about reshuffles. I worry about, you know, the government collapsing. I worry they won't make it till... Um, you know, another year's time and a bit. Mm. However, there are a couple of things that they have said that they will do or that they're in the process of doing or that they might do that will make a very big difference. Uh, one of those is this long delayed schools guidance. Uh, and, you know, judging by what's been leaked, they're not far off something pretty sensible. And that, of course, will get called genocide. It's already being called genocide. Like there's literally people on Twitter saying that telling the boys that just because they say they're girls doesn't mean they can go into the girls' changing rooms, that that's genocide. But sterilising them is, is definitely not, right? I'm, I'm really no, glad they can hear it's that It's extraordinary, that. isn't it? We are in upside-down world. Like if you just put not into every sentence these people mm. say, you'll get there. Um, so that's one good thing that the, the Conservatives could do before they finish this term in office. And the other one is, you know, so I work for Sex Matters, which is now um, it's a human rights organisation that uh, promotes clarity on the meaning of sex in law and, uh, and policy in everyday life. Um, and there's this, there's this confusion about whether um, a Gender Recognition Act changes your sex for the purposes of the Equality Act. Like, I know, I'm sorry, I want to, I want to fall asleep myself saying that sentence, but it's, it's, a, it's a, an annoying spanner in the works of the way that the Equality Act works. If if this piece of paper that changes your sex for some purposes in 2004 that were intended to be marriage, pensions and some privacy rights, if that changes your sex for the purposes of the, of the discrimination law, it really messes up a bunch of things in terms of thinking about when it's okay to have single sex services, even though you're only talking about about 5,000 people. 
So we think the government should clarify that. And if Rishi Sunak goes into the next election saying that the Conservative Party are the only party who know that it's 100% of women who don't have penises, not 99.9%, and he hasn't done this, then he is a liar because that's what you have to do. That 0.1% is because of this muddle about gender recognition certificates. That's where Keir's got it from. Like, here's a lawyer. Lawyers believe stupid things after all the education they go through. They get to the end of it and they think the piece of paper in the law is the real thing. Like, it doesn't matter how many pieces of paper you get saying that you're a woman if you're a man. You're still a man. But lawyers think no, that governments are able to redefine these things. So that's the Conservatives. Labour have been on a journey, and I only know parts of it, I think that what Keir has woken up to, I mean, there's no way Keir seriously ever thought that you could change sex. He's not an idiot. Um, I think he thought that this was not important, which is something that men commonly think. Like if they classify it under women's rights, they think it's not very important. It's been interesting watching men wake up when they realise it's about children as well, because they don't really care about women, but lots of them care about children. Uh, so Keir has woken up that it's important, but more than that, he's seen what happened in Scotland So, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon was brought down by a range of things, but it did not help that she actually had to sit in live press conferences with the pictures of Isla Bryson, with his penis showing through his pink leggings, you know, convicted of two rapes, calling himself a woman, with a blonde wig hiding the Mike Tyson tattoo on his face. You know, it's just the whole thing. It couldn't be more ridiculous. And she wasn't able to say he's a man. Well, she said there are three genders, male, female and and rapist. rapist. I know. I mean, so so I think Kira looked at that and I mean, I I don't think it would stop him from winning the next election, but it, it really has the potential to waste his next term in office. Like to really significantly take the focus off things he might want to do. If every damn time he's trying to talk about anything, somebody says, what about that 0.1% of women who have penises? Or, you know, these these cases just keep coming up with some regularity. The Sarah Jane, whether it's Barker or Baker, sorry, I should have checked first. Or Isla Bryson, like these are just going to keep coming and you want to have a clear thing to say. So I think it's that. I think he realised he didn't want to waste his term in office. And That, I mean, if he has any sense, what he realised that means is, you know, quietly letting it be known that he won't get in the way of the Tories getting these things sorted out while they're still in power. Because then he can come in and he can perfectly realistically say, look, we're in crisis, there's a war, there's a cost of living crisis, energy, whatever, blah, 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 list all the things that are going on. You seriously want me to try to mess around with this law that was was a mess already and has been somewhat fixed? No, I'm too busy. So that's, I think, I hope, what Labour's strategy is. They're not going to do anything on it if it's got to a stage where they can just do nothing. And then the third thing you asked me about was about religion and belief and the Equality Act. Um, I don't think there's any problem in this being classified as a religion or belief, and indeed it already is. So my colleague, Maya Forstatter, who was one of the co-founders of Sex Matters, won a very important uh, appeal, a case in the Employment Appeal Tribunal, which set precedent and which established that her so-called gender critical beliefs, I don't think it's a good name, but anyway, we're stuck with it, uh, are protected. So beliefs can be protected under the Equality Act, even when they're not religions. So veganism and pacifism are. And what what it means to be a protected belief is that you can't be fired or discriminated against on the basis of that belief. So her belief, which had to be carefully described because beliefs can't be purely factual. um, Her belief is that there are two sexes, uh, that people can't change sex and that matters in particular for women's rights. The first two bits are just factual. 
And the last bit is the important bit to make it a belief. So that's a protected belief. But as soon as a belief is protected, its opposite is too. And I mean, what the opposite of hers is, is something like, you know, women are timeless, formless, the world. Yeah, whatever, whatever, you know, sex is a spectrum or you can change sex or or perhaps even, yes, there are two sexes, but that doesn't matter in any meaningful sense. All spaces should be gender neutral. We should just have sports, you know, just throw them all in everybody and let them all run and see who's fastest, whatever. So, So those are already protected beliefs. That doesn't protect trans people per se, because being trans isn't the same thing as believing this nonsense. Like there's a significant overlap, but there are many people who believe this nonsense who aren't trans. They regard themselves as trans allies. I would like to see this just more explicitly stated as a belief, and then we could examine it and say, is this a belief that is is worthy of protection? Because some beliefs aren't. They're just too harmful for everybody else. But we're not there yet. Yeah, speaking of uh, harmful beliefs then, I'm, I'm hearing the Conservatives going into remission uh, as, as a prediction, I, one I share, and one that I think some of the Conservative Party staffers share. And I've spoken to some people behind the scenes, and they say that this prediction is, is quite realistic, and that is that Penny Mordaunt's probably going to be Rishi Sunak's continuity candidate, because she can carry a sword. That's about <sighs> it. Yeah, I know. There's the big sigh from her, from her being a trans ally at the dispatch box. But there is the prediction that if some of the sensible conservatives retain their seats in the great onslaught that's coming, that the legislative and narrative wave that will be coming with the likes of detransitioners or, or your, your pushback over at Sex Matters, that Mordaunt's position will become untenable because of her past record being so trans-affirming. You might get someone, someone sensible in. And so one of, the, one of the landmark cases for that is actually looking, looking hopefully to be Richie Herons. Not just for the NHS, but he's allied with a father who's stayed anonymous, whose autistic son has been fast-tracked to go through gender-affirming therapy or, or surgeries or tra- trans procedures. I hate using that language, sorry. It looks like this actually may be one of the catalysts to changing it, at least up until 25, the age of cognitive development. And I wanted to tie that up with in trigonometry, your interview with trigonometry and, and your chat with Peter Bogosian, you said that you were sceptical as to whether at all any of these procedures can actually help people shake them out of their dysphoria because yeah. um, it's very hard to quantify. So, so my, my question to you is, do, would, would you support a, a blanket ban on these procedures? Um, and also, how, how tenable do you think that is going to be legislatively in the future? It doesn't tend to be that you ban procedures. They, they fall out of favour um, it's really very unusual and very difficult for lawmakers to ban things that doctors say should be done. Like, it tends to be a self-regulating profession. Like I, don't, I mean, as far as I know, lobotomies were never banned. It just became clear that you didn't do them because they were very harmful and, you know, they, they did a great deal of harm and no good. I, I'm guessing it'll be like that. Um, it's, it's really hard also to see how you would uh, raise the age at 25. There's just no precedent for that. In medicine, really, we say that people are adults at 18. Uh, there are, it is very hard to get certain procedures young, but it's not law. Like a woman who wants to get um, her tubes tied will tend to find that she isn't able to find a doctor to do it until her mid-30s. Uh, just because doctors know a lot about the fact that people say they don't want kids and then they decide they do want them in their mid-30s. And a lot of women experience that as very paternalistic and it is very paternalistic. But the fact is doctors know that there's a lot of regret. So you can kind of see where they're coming from. But that's not law. I I would just be very um, 
very skeptical that anyone could really make that happen. Like they're doing it in America, I know. Uh, there's all these bands uh, at state level. So I suppose, but we, we've just, we've tended to have, you know, less extreme and we, we tend to be able to kind of let things um, work out in the right arena. Like I want this solved in the arena of medicine. I mean, I'd never say never, but I just, I just don't, I'm not, I'm saying if you're holding onto the hope that these things will be banned, I'm not sure. I think uh, here in this country, the best route to stopping these things is that um, NICE, the people who do the evaluations of health treatments, cost-benefit analyses for the NHS, get their asses in gear and do really proper study on this. They've done some uh, literature reviews so far, but that depends on what's out there already and what's out there is rubbish. So all they've been able to say is the evidence base is basically non-existent. What they should be doing is they should be proactively creating an evidence base. We can do that in this country. Like this is the perfect country to do it in because we've got a single payer national health system. So, you, and, and you can track people with their NHS number. We should be, we should be, the UK should be saying, we're going to find out whether this works or not. Uh, you know, we're going to be registering all gender treatments. We're going to be doing long-term follow-ups and we'll come back. And then, you know, in the NHS, if something isn't worth doing, if the cost-benefit analysis isn't there, they stop doing it. It's, it's really brutal in the NHS that way. Like, it's good. So we could just stop doing it because it doesn't work. That's the way to stop doing it. But nobody's making the evidence base. And that is not a coincidence. These people do not want to know what the outcomes are. I mean, the cynical side of me says because they know the outcomes aren't good, but I don't think it is that actually. I think it's that the outcomes are beside the point as far as they're concerned. Like it, the affirmation is all. You'll see these articles. There was one in the New York Times where they talked to some trans non-binary doctor. I actually can't remember whether this is a man or a woman. I think it was a man. Um, and he was saying, uh, you know, I, I think the whole concept of regret isn't the right concept because people are on a gender journey and, you know, what was it? He had this wonderful phrase, embodiment goals. People's embodiment goals change. And that's a way of saying that a girl who cuts her breasts off might regret it later. Her embodiment goals changed. Like, it's absolutely just nihilistic and evil, frankly, this way of talking about human beings. But that's where they're at. Like to this guy, it doesn't matter whether the person regrets. It doesn't matter whether it makes them feel better. It was what they wanted. It was their embodiment goal. That might change. Too bad. Yeah, actually, this is this is something I wanted to, to pick up on um, to maybe disentangle some areas of agreement, disagreement like I had when reading the book. Uh, this is a scenario of disagreement, perhaps to, to elongate the argument. Um, that perspective of embodiment goals positions oneself as the disembodied will, the sort of yeah. the Cartesian yeah. subject that can inhabit anybody at any time. And, and this is something you picked up on that, that was given rise to by digital existence. Yeah. If if you are an interchangeable avatar and you live most of your life vicariously through a screen. I don't think it was given rise to, I think it was given wings. I think that human beings feel like that quite naturally. Mm. I think we're a very strange animal. Like we're physically quite weak. And we've got this ridiculous brain that does mad things and that, you know, dreams and imagines and thinks about things before, like, before we were born and after we're dead. And, you know, we are a sort of a ghost in a machine. And, and, and then you move to online and it just makes it much worse. Right. So it almost, it almost yeah. legitimates that self-conception. Right? Yeah. Well, this is, this, is, this is something that I felt was maybe a bit absent. Um, have you, are you familiar with Ivan Illich's work, Gender? 
No. Okay. Right. I'll be honest. Fa- cannot recommend it highly All enough. Right. It's it's something that um, uh, Louise Perry and and Mary Harrington introduced me to, and and he he is a fierce critic of the industrial revolution, and yeah. he says how the the unisex nature of machinery has alienated us from living in time and place and custom that yeah. were that were sex specific you know even tools had different handles and that and i wonder if if the omission from the consideration of it being the trans ideology not just being a, a pure campus activist thing but a tech issue might be one of the the ways in which we're struggling to combat this because i do see us in a bit of a, an arms race between um can we codify this as a protected belief? Can we prevent uh, children from accessing these surgeries? And can we hold to a concrete definition of, of woman, which is adult human female, versus the approximations getting so good with, dread to think it, transplanted artificial wombs, so you do become the Dutch girl just without dying. Um, that, that, Danish, Danish girl. Danish girl, sorry. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that definition almost no longer stands. All of its constituent parts have been atomized by, by tech. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sceptical of these medical advances being anywhere as, as close as people say they are. But like, let's just suppose they are. Mm. Suppose that you could grow, you know, a functioning penis, functioning urethra, functioning all those other bits, and you could actually put one reproductive system inside a body of the other. I mean, you could do that... And then you would create something that evolution hadn't created because, you know, something I, I I mean, I didn't disagree with this before I wrote my book. I just had never thought about it. I had never thought about how when you're a mammal, which is an animal where all the, this isn't the only definition of a mammal. I just mean it's part of the definition of a mammal. All the male parts are in one body and all the female parts are in the other body. And, you know, that's not true for some other animals. Mm. But when you're a mammal, every bit of you is male or female, every bit like every cell of your body, every arrangement. And I hadn't realised the extent to which that's things like the thickness of your skin, the way that your bones are made, the angle of almost every joint, the you know, the composition of your muscles, the flexibility and strength of your tendons. I mean, I can just, you know, your colour perception, your take, absolutely blooming everything is statistically different for men and women. Um, there's more than 10,000 physical differences that we know of. So you put, if you put a, a functioning male reproductive system in a female body or vice versa, the rest of the body is not changed. And neither is the mind. And evolution works on minds as well, whatever you mean by mind, brains, together with patterns of behaviour, interests, whatever. You know, statistically, we're about as different mentally as we are physically, which is moderately sexually dimorphic is what we're classed as, as a species. Like there are much more dimorphic species and there are ones that are less dimorphic as well. So you would end up with with people who can get pregnant and give birth or who can become fathers who haven't been shaped by hundreds of millions of years of evolution to be the sort of people who do that sort of thing. I mean, maybe this is going to happen and then we'll just have to see what it's like. Uh, I'm, I'm, I respect evolution enough. I think evolution is such an extraordinary um, creator of something out of nothing. It's the only something out of nothing that I know of. That I, I'm, I boggle and feel sick at the thought of doing that. However, we, we keep doing things that, you know, if we had known we were going to do them, we probably would have thought, like, that makes me feel sick. So I've read both Louise Perry's and Mary Harrington's books. In fact, I've blurbed both of them, and they're both fascinating and well worth reading. Um, and as I said, I think to both of them at different points, like, when they say tech, I want to say market. 
because another way of saying the industrial revolution or the tech revolution is to say the marketization revolution. They're intertwined, definitely. Yeah, but I think what's useful about the market is that there are things that are marketized and things that aren't. And, you know, from Adam Smith onwards, what you can conceive of progress as being, like progress meaning these revolutions, is the intrusion of the market into more and more areas. So when Adam Smith wrote, he wrote about um, the wealth of nations, which was about the things that are marketized, and he explained how the market works, the invisible hand. But he also wrote about the theory of moral sentiments, which is places the market doesn't reach. And that's the family. On the shelf there. Right. And then you can, another way that you could describe the industrial revolution and the time since is the intrusion of the market into more and more places that were in the moral sentiments domain. So, you know, we have, we paid for childcare, paid for elderly care, dating apps. Um, surrogacy increasingly. Surrogacy, um, yeah, IVF, which by the way, I, both my own children are by IVF. So I'm not saying that I'm against all of this. I'm just saying that, you know, the market goes into places where that wasn't the way we thought. And, you know, here we're seeing the market going into something new as well. Like it was it was never up for grabs, which sex you were and now you can buy it. I mean, you can't really. But what you're what you're positing is that we could actually buy a decent simulacrum of being the opposite sex. Yeah, you can play ship of Theseus to such a convincing degree. Yeah. Externally, it might be indistinguishable. Yes. So... I mean, every time this happens, it takes a while to realise how it plays out. And in fact, like really long run, you could say we're still working out, you know, what the, the spinning wheel did to us. You know, I mean, all of it, it all, every, everything takes generations to play out. And, and I mean, you know, te techno-optimists often call uh, the upside of it too early. Um, you know, I think that's a strong tendency in the sort of, uh, small L liberal, you know, tradition that I would have still, that I'm still hanging on to with my fingertips <laughs> and that I would have said that I was in a very confidently even just a few years ago, you know, to say, look at this thing, isn't this great? You know, it's much more efficient. It's much more liquid and fluid. Um, you know, dating apps are bringing together people who might never have been brought together before and so on. And then as time goes on, you see it playing out. I mean, the pill is the classic example of yes. that. Um you know, I think it's brilliant that women don't have to have babies they don't want. I think, you know, I mean, I'm Irish. I, I'm, we, I wasn't able to get the pill when I was a student, except by the doctor saying that I had very painful periods. Like unmarried women weren't able to get contraception for the purposes of contraception when I was in my teens and 20s in Ireland. So, you know, I'm much nearer than most English people would be to the time when people really unwillingly had a lot of children that they couldn't feed. You know, people of my parents' generation knew lots of people like that. And people of the generation above that gave children up because they couldn't feed them. So I'm glad we're not there anymore. But yet we are still seeing it play out in family size. And I mean, that's that's ratcheting. Like when families get smaller, they keep getting smaller, it turns out. We didn't know that when I was in my teens and 20s, but we know it now. And the pill has been around for decades and decades. So what's it going to be like if these surgeries do get much better? Dread we won't know for another 100 years, 200 years. I don't know if mm. we're still here. That's So to, to pick up on the pill point, that's something else that I wanted to ask about. During the book, I, I definitely got some of that liberal feminist vibe. Um, and so, so my, my question would be, similarly on the tech issue, but also this is a point that, that Mary's made uh, in her book and, and to me, that is that it's going to be very difficult to return to that 
kind of 90s feminism which which seems to be a lot of what your argument rests on because that was the the fertile soil from which this endocrine re-engineering philosophy of trans sprung from and and i think that's something that that characterizes the current disagreement between jk rowling and uh, matt walsh who you have said has now become aware of of your work and has his has his misgivings i'm not sure he's aware of my work Right. I, I, he doesn't give any impression of actually ever, ever having read anything that I've written. Which is surprising, considering it's one of the flagship books. But um, I don't. Th- I mean, I, I think this is a man who already knows what he thinks about everything. So, fair point. Um, <laughs> but, but this, but this is actually part of the thing. So, I, I would say I'm much more on Matt Walsh's side on on what kind of vision of the future after we put woke away we would want to see. Uh, I, I, you've, you've had conversations with the ADF before. Um, yes, for my book I did. Yes, yes. yes. So I had, I had Lois McClatchy, who's, who's a, a Scottish woman who works with the UK branch in the other day. So there are, there are you know, similarities there. Um, so my, my, my question, I suppose, is how do we mediate those two competing visions once, once gender ideology has been vanquished? Like, can, can the TERFs and the Conservatives whatever you want to call conservative these days. Or whatever you want to call turf, frankly. Exactly, yeah. Still, yeah. still stay in coalition after... I don't think we're really in coalition. I mean, I'm, oh God, you know... Oh God, so you've just, you've just opened like a million cans of worms and I don't know which one to Pandora's start. Pandora's box has been unleashed. No, yeah. it's really, it's cans of worms. I wish it was Pandora's box. There was hope inside that. That was fine. <laughs> um, where will I start with this? God... I've lost track. Lost track where we started. Um, let me pick some part of of this up. So, I I just have to push back a bit at the idea that it's nineteen nineties feminism that created the, the 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 fertile ground in which trans ideology was was gestated. Hmm. It just goes back a lot further, and it goes and it has it has many parents, some of which are enormously anti feminist. So um, you have to look at the work of, say, John Money, who was a sexologist yes. who you know, did horrifically unethical operations, as we would now recognise them, on children with differences of sex development or who'd had damaged genitals. And he, he had very strong ideas that what, you know, what men and women were were really 1950s sex roles and that you could uh, indoctrinate any child into either sex role if you started early enough. So as far as he was concerned, a woman really meant a female person really meant a person who stayed home and wore aprons and cooked and you know was subservient and decorative and passive and so on and you can guess i won't bother with the list for men and that if you chopped a little boy's penis off and gave him testosterone when he reached teen years and told him he was a girl in between he'd be perfectly happy with the passive sex role too i mean that's the person who is the single most influential on trans ideology today and i mean that's the most anti-feminist vision you could possibly imagine so please don't blame us for that i think there was a kind of unholy and possibly unintentional union of bits like I see this as a scavenger movement that takes the bits that it wants from all sorts of places. And another thing, we would not be where we are today if it wasn't for men and their sex drives. Um, you know, these men whose sexual desire is to present themselves as women, they are the, they, they are the engine that drives more than anything else this movement. Absolutely, yeah. That's not feminist. It's anti-feminist. We don't like those blokes. They're blokes who want to overstep mm. women's boundaries. So I just I just think like saying, oh, you know, this is the ground that it sprang out of is feminism. I do not deny, and I mean, I'd be a fool to deny that there's a strand of feminism that is this weird, you know, men and women are the same in every respect, except women are special and different. And I, I don't even know what these people think. They're as incoherent as the, the trans lot. Um, 
But they also decouple women from their embodied reality. And, and yeah, so I don't know what they even think women are. Like, I mean, you know, I've been accused by one of them in a particularly clunky bit. Well, it's actually a man who calls himself a woman who said this. But a very clunky bit of prose. He said that, you know, I had thrown the the baby of feminism out with the trans bathwater. And I, I mean, you can like if you translate this back into reality based embodied language, what you're saying is that you say men can't be women. And that means that you're being very bad for women, which just makes no sense. So you can only talk their kind of nonsense if you don't talk about actual bodies. Yeah, but I can I can I can see that a little bit with the kind of strand of feminism that Simone de Beauvoir typifies. This is something I've spoken to Abigail Favale about before. She calls herself a Catholic feminist. So she's yeah. very much on, on sex difference. And, and she pointed out the hilarity of Simone de Beauvoir assuming that the women, if they could just be psychologically deconditioned from, from the violence of reason inflicted upon them by men prohibiting them from education, that we'd all end up in, the last word of her book being, a Marxist brotherhood. And so it's the mm. application of the male unisex standard on But remember, she was women. writing in French. So I think that's well, possibly yes. a bit unfair because in French, grammatically, hmm. the man covers the woman. Hmm. So you use, you know, ILS, il, for groups which have like 10,000 women and one man, you know? True, true. So I don't know, I wouldn't read too much into that. Um, I, I, I agree and disagree with many things about Simone de Beauvoir, but it's a long time since I've read any, so let's not go there because <laughs> I don't think I could do myself justice or, or this conversation justice. Um, you, you know, feminism has, as a, as a, if, it isn't even a movement, it's many movements, but the task of feminism is an almost uniquely difficult task because motherhood is such a rupture in a woman's life and it's not the only rupture like women are much more episodic than men yes so a woman going through puberty a girl going through puberty like boys go through puberty too but a girl becomes a sort of a a sexual being in the world like very abruptly and much too young at puberty and you know it's sort of almost a precious resource at that point like you know the most beautiful people in the world if you look at fashion designs they, they just want 14 year olds basically and then you have some period of being you know a scarce resource beautiful fertile whatever you become a mother that's the most scarce resource that there is in humanity is the nine months that you gestate a baby the year or two that you look after the baby when they can't um, do anything else and you need help like you know we have very difficult and very troublesome pregnancy childbirth early child rearing much more so than most mammals and then you go through menopause. And that's another big rupture in a woman's life that doesn't exist in, I think, any other mammal except one type of whale. So we're just this very strange animal, but the strangeness is mostly in the women. <laughs> the, men, the men are much more standard. You're much more, you know, you, you, you grow, you become peak age, you stay at peak age for quite a long time, and then you kind of fall off. And you're, you're fertile through all of it from about 14. So feminism has to represent these episodic, very different women whose interests are often not very like each other. Like the interests of a childless woman and a, a mother are not very similar. A woman who's embedded in a man's household, her interests are often aligned with the man's rather than other women's. And child rearing does just keep women at home for a considerable point of part of their lives making it very difficult for women to be represented in the political and economic decision-making process of a country. You know, and that's something that I think is permanent. I don't think we can fix or change that, except by constantly leaning against it. So feminism is just a really difficult movement. You're trying to represent the interests of all women when women are just so varied and their interests often are not aligned. So I just don't think it's that surprising that you end up with very different strands of feminism and sometimes contradictory ones. 
And I mean, you know, I, I try to I try to talk about women as an embodied reality. I am a mother myself. And, you know, I look back to see what I'd said in the book about, you know, how feminism had got things right and wrong. And it's a shortish section. Everything's a short section in the book because I was trying to pack so much in. But I said something like, um, you know, a feminism that doesn't support and create a world that's suitable for mothers is not worthy of the name feminism. But many women are not mothers and mothers are many other things besides. And that's a very difficult tightrope walk for a, a tightrope for a movement to walk. And feminism falls off all the time and individual women fall off all the time. I don't know why we'd be surprised by that, you know. And then to have somebody pick one bit of it and say, like one bit of what I would say or what somebody else would say and then say, Look, oh, you say this, but other women are like that. Well, bloody hell. You know, we're not men. Like we're much, much more varied and difficult than men are. So, so to to pick up on that, I suppose to trail into one final point before um, obviously you have to you have to leave. Uh, as you've said, the men not having an episodic stage in their life can mean, I think, one of two things. It could mean that you have continuity of personhood, uh, and this could lead you to the disembodied will perspective, which has legitimated a lot of the autogynophiles that are driving this transhumanist transgender movement. Or I think, particularly speaking as a young man, the, the lack of initiation rituals that men don't go through now has kind of left them feeling a bit lost. And this was one of my, my main point of misgivings that, that I think, um, I don't know if you've spoken to Mary Harrington in private about this, but, but in her book, it's kind of a contrast to yours. One of the points you made in there was the disruption of male-only spaces yeah. as akin to the ending of segregation yeah. in the Jim Crow South. Yeah. And, and that did annoy me a bit. Because um, <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't think it's, a, it's an apt comparison because, of course, racial differences are nothing like sexual differences. Yeah, yeah. And as you said, men and women have very different... Not only is the power dynamic very different yeah. between men and women, which is why a man should never enter a woman's space, but between men and men, it, it mediates I, I don't think I ever say there shouldn't be any men's spaces. Um, I say that a lot of men's spaces are where women were specifically locked out. Because, I mean, you know, among the men's spaces, what I'm talking about men's spaces in the book is things like the professions, all of the professions. Like, they were male-only spaces. Universities were male-only spaces. You know, the voting booth was a male-only space. I don't think you could defend those. Right. I, 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 I mean, I'm, I'm a heterosexual woman. I'm married. I have two sons. You know, I have five brothers. I'm really not anti-men. No, no, and, I've, I've never um, had that impression. And... You know, I do look at young men and think, gosh, you, you know, I mean, men are just a bit useless compared with women. I mean, historically and through evolution in the sense that men are disposable. Like the thing that men give to the next generation, it's, it's very substitutable and you don't need very many men. And, you know, women are much more precious. Like if you look at a tribal group, the precious thing is the fertile women and the babies. That's that's the um, that's the resource in a pre-money society. Men are not the resource. And that's why, you know, men are corralled into going out and fighting and, you know, their, their blood's wasted in wars and so on. I often wonder how Freud couldn't have noticed that. Like the idea that women envy penises, obviously men envy wombs, for goodness sake. Like that's the scarce resource in humanity is, is reproductive capacity and it's women's. And that's why women, men have liked to control it. Um, so young men have always had to be given a purpose and a reason and a way to become men because women don't need that because it's obvious how we do it. Um, 
And every time I say these things, people misquote me and say, I think that a woman doesn't matter if she's not a mother. Please put in all those disclaimers. I'm just talking about sort of archetypes here in the way that societies are laid out. So, yes, so a lot of cultures try to find some way to make men feel like men because there isn't a natural, you don't, like becoming a father is not like becoming a mother. And we don't do that. And we tell young men that what makes you a successful man like it's things that are just very hard to achieve like we've got rid of a lot of the things that used to be participation ways of feeling good about yourself for both men and women but it matters more for men I think you know if you've got rid of the church you haven't got ways of just being part of the the way that your church does stuff which you don't have to be particularly good at you just have to show up um we've uh, foolishly in my opinion told young men that they don't need to look after mothers and children uh, you know I mean I'm always amazed now when I see young men not get up for a pregnant woman on the train or not help people with their shopping or help people with their buggies or whatever it's always women who help you it's not men but you know men have to be told that there's a purpose they have to be given a purpose I don't know if you need an initiation ritual but that needs some thought and we're not doing that thinking we're leaving men to be quite useless and aimless I mean, I'm not against men only spaces because I think, you know, there are places, there are times that men want to be with other men. I mean, you've largely got them with computer game type things and, you know, a lot of sport basically is kind of men only in terms of the um, the viewership. What I'm against is stitch ups. And that's what I was trying to get at in the book. And I, I mean, I really didn't say that there shouldn't be any men only spaces. I said that breaking down the places that men kept women out of to keep them down, that was desegregation. So just to clear up my analogy there. That's all right. So, so yeah, to, to conclude then, to wrap that back around to the, uh, the, the Matt Walsh-JK Rowling dichotomy, I would say maybe, maybe something that, that I need to think about going away from this is the positive role that men can contribute to the, the parallel movement with, with women such as yourself saying, get out of our spaces on a, on a we should be entitled to protection ground. And also the kind of world we're going to build after this contagion stops distracting us. Um, because I think even though Matt Walsh and Judy Binder will never, ever, ever agree on anything, um, we do have to learn to live together in some way. Oh yeah, that's what you were actually asking me about. Sorry, I got very right. sidetracked onto the, the, um, this, the men's single sex spaces. Um, I, I don't I I don't see us working together, but then I see I don't see feminists really working together much. There's like there's clusters of people you know pulling in the same direction. Like you know if you if you've if you've got a if you're pulling something and you're not actually pulling in opposite directions, you're kind of moving things in the same direction. That's as near as we'd get. Um, obviously, Matt Walsh did a good thing in bringing the lunacy of what these gender ideologues say to a large audience. And I find that impressive and useful. I think that the world that, I mean, I hope I'm not doing the men a disfavour. I mean, I was brought up Catholic in a conservative Catholic country, so I don't think I am. I think he's the sort of, you know, pre-Vatican II Catholic. Hello. <laughs> You're pre-Vatican. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, you can tell me if I'm being unfair. So, so I think he, you know, he's anti-abortion. He's probably anti-contraception. Um, you know, he'd be anti, he, he would think it's reasonable for men to be the, you know, the leaders and the head of the family and the woman as the helpmeet type character. Um, what else? I, I presume he thinks that gay marriage is wrong. And if he follows the current phraseology of the Catholic Church, that um, homosexual relationships are objectively disordered. 
uh, I don't know what he thinks that means for people who are exclusively attracted to their own sex. Like, does that mean that they should just stay, stay um, uh, you know, without a partner or what? You know, this is this is not a vision of the world, to say the least, that is going to attract many of the young people who are currently attracted by trans ideology. In particular, it's not going to attract many of the girls. Um, and the girls are the big majority of them. It's also not going to attract the proto-gay boys, the Richie Herons of the world. I mean, Richie is gay. Yes. And you just have to accept that the reason he was caught up in this, you know, started with the fact that he was gay and had internalised homophobia. Hmm. So the two the two groups that I that my heart goes out to, and I think this is true for J.K. Rowling as well, are these little proto-gay kids who wonder, why am I so different? And I think Matt Walsh has literally zero to offer those kids. And also the girls. And, you know, so I, I mean, I don't want to beef back at Matt Walsh. I don't think it's worth it. But I did I did write my, my own newsletter about um, his reaction to my reaction to his reaction. God, it's so bloody metal. It turns us all the way down again. <laughs> oh, God, it's painful. Um in my own newsletter this week. And I said something, like I was trying to sharpen up what I'd said because he was picking out a particular bit that makes it look like I think the traditional marriages are a bad thing. I'm in a traditional marriage. I'm a, you know, I'm a heterosexual woman. I gave birth twice. My children are more important to me than everything else in my life. And I've always known that they would be. And I've always wanted to be a mother. And I do a very significant amount of care work. And I do not resent that care work at all. So you know, to the extent that it looked like I think that those things aren't worth doing or that they're degrading or anything, that's absolutely not what I meant. What I was trying to say was that in Matt Walsh's vision of the world, the men are the actors and the women are the helpmeets. And, you know, women have always been sidelined and positioned as supporting actors in their own lives. Like we are all supporting actors in other people's lives and that's fine and part of growing up is accepting that. Like, we can't all run around the place with the spotlight on us. It's not me, me, me the whole time. As you get more mature, you realise it's not all about you. In fact, it's often nothing to do with you. And that you end up both men and women doing an awful lot of things willingly, lovingly, for the sake of your family. You know, you get up early, you do shitty jobs, you clean up nappies, you do whatever, you know. And that's fine. That's life. That's what it is to, to have a family and families are the best thing. But if you... And, you know, in, in Matt Walsh's film, he really personified this. If you say that the only people who are actually doing anything and thinking anything and being centred are the men and the women are kind of, you know, orbiting around them, I'm sorry, you're just not going to get through to these girls. You're just not. That's the sex stereotype that makes girls want to be boys more than anything else, that the only way that you can be fully human is to be male. And that's absolutely not only something about orthodox or traditional Catholicism, like, that's the meaning of the title, The Second Sex. It's the meaning of the title, The Female Eunuch. It's what Virginia Woolf said when she said that the power of women, I'm not going to get the wording exactly right, was to hold up a mirror to men and reflect them back to themselves twice the size. To the extent that you don't understand that women and girls are given a vision of what it is to be a woman that is not centred in themselves, in their own bodies, in their own... Um, personhood in their own uniqueness and men are you're not going to get through to these girls so I don't think Matt Walsh helps in mm. that sense and I also think he's an extremely arrogant man who thinks that all women or at least all feminists are basically a sort of a, an amorphous blob hive mind Borg or something that just all we all have the same opinions because he attributes opinions to me that I hold the opposite of and that I've written the opposite of so I don't know who he thinks is saying these things but it's not bloody me <laughs> 
So it's just this faceless, ooh, feminism. Feminism is cancer. Like, God's sake, that's the most stupid tagline I've ever seen. And he thinks he can help. I don't think he thinks he can help. I don't think he's even trying to help, frankly. I mean, I do have fun with the feminism is cancer one, but I will say Walsh could definitely do with reading some Illich and some Harrington. Cause... He could do with just actually getting his head out of his own arse and, uh, God, I know I'm beefing. I don't want to beef. No, it's just the Irish way of putting things. That's uh, yeah, all. but I, I just... I just... It's <laughs> so tiresome. Like, you know, I just want to get a T-shirt made saying, like, read what I actually wrote. Yes, yep. <laughs> Many like, such at cases. At least criticise me for what I wrote, not for what other people wrote or what I wrote the opposite of. Well, I encourage people to go and read the book in that case, then. It's a perfect <laughs> note to end on. Helen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank, thank you for you having so me. Thank you so much for coming in. And thank you very much for watching, everyone. Goodbye.